Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Simmons Leadership Conference, Wednesday, April 3rd, in person and online. A day of inspiration, skill building, and networking, featuring Trevor Noah, Gloria Steinem, and Padma Lakshmi. Inclusiveleadership.com. And Cambridge Savings Bank. CSB is committed to improving the financial well-being of local small businesses through financial education and banking services. Learn more at cambridgesavings.com. Member FDIC. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, after hours of late hearings, is the impeachment trial of Donald Trump about to be over? Democrats hope that some of their GOP colleagues will vote to call witnesses. So far, they seem to have two Susan Collins and Mitt Romney. But last night, potential swing voter Lamar Alexander said he's seen enough. So where does this leave America? The Senate acquits Donald Trump today. Have they given a license to Trump and any future president to do just about anything? In a few minutes, we'll open lines and ask you. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo sat down for an interview with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly, things didn't quite go as either had planned. When the conversation turned to Ukraine, Pompeo lashed out and ended the interview. To make matters worse, after it was over, Kelly says Pompeo shouted at her for roughly nine minutes. In our first hour, we'll ask Beat the Press host Emily Rooney what she thinks of both Kelly and Pompeo and how they handled the showdown. That's all next on Boston Public Radio on WGBH. Welcome to Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy. Marjorie Egan is off yet again today. I don't think she can handle the traumatic <laughs> nature of the day. She will return on Monday. Sitting in for her as executive arts editor for WGBH, that'd be Jared Bowen. Hello again, Jared. Hello again. Great to be with you. And you as well. So revelations from John Bolton's forthcoming book is why there have been renewed demands for witnesses at Trump's impeachment trial. It's somewhat ironic that Bolton's book is titled The Room Where It Happened, a reference, obviously, to the musical about Alexander Hamilton a founding father who pushed for impeachment powers. Now we have another Alexander who wants to make sure the Senate chamber is the room where it does not happen. Last night at 11, as I'm sure you know, Senator Lamar Alexander, a crucial swing vote, tweeted he would not support a motion to hear witnesses. So unless the unexpected happens, like a rogue Republican casting a fourth vote, or Justice Roberts breaks a tie if there is one and casts a vote in the Democrats' favor, the impeachment trial is effectively over, and the assumption is the two charges will be dismissed sometime this afternoon or early evening. We're opening the lines asking you, if that happens, who wins and who loses? Is Trump a winner? Not only are his approval ratings at the highest average level since his first month in office, but his campaign says impeachment helped him raise $46 million dollars. And if he's acquitted, he'll get to have his victory lap at next week's State of the Union address. I think it's February 4th. And what will he feel entitled to do next? Or will the Democrats have an advantage because Republicans have so blatantly ignored public opinion and fairness? Today, there's a new poll that finds majority of voters, in fact, uh, specifically 57 to 25 percent of voters want Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, to allow impeachment witnesses. So the number is 8773 Zero one eighty nine seventy. We should lay out where things stand. Uh, Susan Collins said yesterday for Maine she will vote for witnesses. Mitt Romney will vote for witnesses. Apparently the only uncommitted uh, person is Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. If she says no, then it's over. I mean, it's over. There are only 49 votes for witnesses. If she says yes, it is 50 to 50, and I assume there'll be an argument, Jared, as to whether or not Chief Justice Roberts both has the power and chooses to use the power 
to break the tie, as we learned from Chuck Todd or somebody, as uh, Chief Justice Chase did in the Andrew Johnson impeachment quite a long uh, time ago. However, if they don't get 50 votes or if they get 50 votes for witnesses and Roberts chooses to continue doing what he's doing, which is virtually nothing yeah. except being a traffic cop, uh, the assumption is the charges will be dismissed this afternoon. And we're supposed to hear something from, presumably, from Murkowski this morning. Lamar Alexander, right. as you stated, decided late last night, issued a statement that was a, a surprise, apparently, even to his staff, who didn't know where he was going to land on this. So he didn't string it out to, to today. But this, yeah, puts Chief Justice John Roberts squarely back in the, the center of what will be historical, no matter what he decides. I mean, whether he decides to just be the traffic cop and not weigh in, uh, or whether he takes what many would think would be a radical move to step in and decide to, to allow witnesses and have a vote in this matter. You know, again, we don't know if it's going to be 50-50 until we hear from uh, Murkowski, as Jared said, assumedly before 1 o'clock today. But if it is, the conventional wisdom is the Democrats obviously want him to exercise his power and the Republicans don't. But it's also risky for the Democrats because they have said, Adam Schiff, lead manager, said, we, uh, we will not appeal any ruling. Nancy Pelosi has said, without witnesses, there is not an acquittal because the trial is a sham. Well, if the Democrats say Roberts has final authority and Roberts rules against calling witnesses and they empowered him to do it, how do they then say, after the Chief Justice has determined that witnesses should not be called in this case, it's a sham and essentially the Chief Justice is part of the sham? So we don't know how it's going to happen. We just do know that a, a critical vote, if not a series of critical votes, will happen this afternoon. So 877-301-8970. If you want to talk about Roberts, you want to talk about what's going to happen today, fine. I'm more interested, and I think Jared is too, about what happens if the charges are dismissed today. We do know that on, I think it's Tuesday night. What night is Trump? It, yeah, it's Tuesday, Tuesday night. night yep. Doing the State of the Union, it is going to be a, a victory speech unlike any other, I think, almost like every speech that uh, Donald Trump gives. But beyond that, what is the restraint on the excesses of presidential power for Donald Trump, for his successor, if it turns out the United States Senate says that what the guy did here, which I think is as clear as the you-know-what on your face, is, is not an impeachable offense. Or, or what happens if, if it does go further down the line and the critics were saying this becomes a template for every administration going forward, that every president is going to be impeached, that, that this is the new way of, of doing things. Uh, but you have to imagine that with the president uh, having his State of the Union speech on Tuesday there at the Capitol uh, parading in on elephants, although the, the, <laughs> the administration has said that they will use this as a fresh start to move beyond. I mean, in the way that we're quickly evolving, Jim, we were just talking about it's hard, so hard to believe that Iowa is next week. I mean, Three this is, days. This is how short our yeah. memories are now that you have to know that by November, too, this will be such a distant memory. So much will have happened between now and then. Well, I mean, the question is obviously Collins felt the pressure, though, to vote for witnesses. There's Cory Gardner, who's in a really tough race, a Republican in Colorado. I mean, some hopeful people believe, Democrats, Democratic-leaning voters, believe that the Republican behavior here, particularly if there are no witnesses and a quick acquittal this afternoon, uh, will accrue to their detriment, at least those who are in tough uh, races come November. And so is it impossible, I'd say it's unlikely, is it impossible that Democrats take back the uh, United States Senate? Uh, uh, I would, again, say unlikely, but 
they would argue, more likely because of what happens today. Well, it was interesting. I heard uh, John Keller on our air yesterday with Joe Matthew yeah. talking about this, because the question that I have had for so long is why the Republicans are so afraid. Obviously, no one wants to lose their seat. No one wants to lose their job and their livelihood. But are they that afraid that they wouldn't have something moving forward? But John Keller made the point, uh, because I, I was thinking again about this with Lamar Alexander, who is retiring. So why is why wouldn't he have more conviction with his vote if he really is wavering. And John Keller made the point that the Trump administration, the president himself, is actually scrutinizing all of these senators, and he they know that what they can bring back to their states from Washington depends on how the president mm -hmm. is viewing them and what they say and whether or not they're appearing on Fox News. Yeah, but someday you have to go home and you have to sleep in your exactly. own bed and you have to think about your legacy. And I naively assumed that that was going to cause at least a small handful of Republicans to say... Uh, we have to do the right thing here. And, and by the way, I'm not even speaking to ultimate acquittal or, or removal. I'm talking about a trial that has witnesses. And again, I could probably make a plausible argument pre-Bolton that you don't need witnesses, even though I don't agree with it at all. I don't see any argument, any argument, except unless you buy Dershowitz's insanity about what the Constitution says for not calling a guy who has first direct first-hand knowledge when the basic criticism of all the 17 witnesses in the House was, according to the Republicans, none of them have first-hand knowledge. Well, here it is, and you're rejecting. In any case, 877-301-8970. So essentially, what we're saying is whatever you want to talk about on the impeachment front, we are here for you. Paul and Worcester, you're first on Boston Public Radio with Jared Bowen and me, Jim Browdy, from the Boston Public Library. Hi. Hi, hello, Jared and Jim. Hey there. Um, two two, thing, two yep. things, actually. I'm wondering if once acquitted, can Trump withhold humanitarian medical support for China on the coronavirus unless they investigate the Bidens that you asked for in the White House lawn? Uh, okay, next. Uh, and it finally occurred to me how the Republicans have the audacity to call themselves the party of Lincoln. Um, I heard this thing about Lincoln sending home, troops home to vote Republican, and maybe the current Republicans consider that the day they invented gerrymandering. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. We're going to talk to Ezra Klein, who's written this wonderful book, Why We're Polarized, at uh, about 1230 uh, today. And uh, there are a lot of people believe that what you just mentioned is gerrymandering is at the root of all evil. I know it's on his list. It's not the only thing, but that is a huge problem in America. It pushes people to the extremes, which is where we are. Paul, thanks for the call. 877-301-897. Again, beginning back to Paul's first, I think, somewhat sarcastic point about humanitarian aid to China for the coronavirus. Why would Don I mean, Donald Trump is a man of excess to begin with. Why would he think after an acquittal, as long as the Senate stays in Republican hands, why would he think there's anything, any restraint, not that he believed it before, but any restraint? You would think that almost to celebrate the acquittal, he might even doing something even more outrageous just to show that he has the exact same kind of power that his lawyers are suggesting he has. It really is that. I mean, I, I would think that people who believe in constitutional government would be concerned about that, even if they love what Trump brings to the table. Not even the same power, perhaps more. We know that he's so. had conviction in, in his expansive power, and uh, yeah, he can continue to test it because we know that this is what people who have worked with him have described as just blind conviction in himself and his powers and what, where his reach extends. 877-301-8970. Let's go to Kim in a car. Hi, Kim. Hi, good morning, Jim and Jared. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Um, so, yeah, I think when you were asking about who's the winners and who's the losers in all of this, 
Um, I really think that the United States is going to be the biggest loser in all of this because of the damage uh, to the system through this whole process. I think that, you know, if Trump gets acquitted, yes, it will be the greatest um, speech in history, you know, saying I beat it, I won. But I think, you know, I think it'll be very damaging to our reputation with the rest of the world, showing that, you know, we really have no control over the Constitution that we had, you know, initially written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Well, I tend you know, to agree. No respect for it. I tend to agree with you. I mean, the, the second thing that we don't talk about as much is the obstruction of Congress. Mar uh, Jared and I talked about it yesterday, Marjorie and I the day before. Uh, when you ignore all congressional subpoenas, the request for documents, the request for information, you're setting another precedent. And I, again, naively, I assume that that would be a problem for Republicans because they do closely guard Congress people, their, their power, but they've decided it's more important to be loyal to the president than it is to be loyal to the notion of co-equal branches of government. So I, I'm practically as pessimistic as you, Kim. I hope we're both wrong, but uh, I think you say it well. Thanks for the call. Well, that's the anatomy of the Lamar Alexander decision-making, is he came to his decision about the, the fact that the president should not be removed and what he's heard so far. He, he, he apparently held, held his own trial with his own thinking and decided he didn't need to hear outside voices, and clearly that's what it's done. We saw this play out with him, though, and he, got to, he brought it right to the deadline and decided uh, that he'd heard enough. He said, uh, I think part of his uh, language was, there was inappropriate behavior but not impeachable. Uh, behavior and that he would not be. You know what's also incredible? Do these people worry that when this book finally does come out, and I know that Trump is trying to stop its publication, I think it's March 17th or something, whatever it is. John Bolton's book, yeah. Bolton's book, I'm sorry, yeah. I, I, assuming that it's as, as damning as the leaked excerpts seem to be, and I'm assuming there's other damning stuff that they're holding back, does that, I mean, how do they weather... That storm, you know? And someone also said, uh, some, uh, I wish I'd thought of this, a couple of nights ago, someone said, you know what Bolton should do? And he should have done it last night, not uh, uh, sometime in the future. He should have done an interview. He just should have done an interview last night or the night before with uh, a credible reporter, maybe Mary Louise Kelly on uh, <laughs> National Public Radio, and just laid out the whole damn thing and let the GOP vote against him being a witness regardless. It's just, it's, it's really unbelievable. But to, to answer your thought, what happens in March? I, I think we take our cues from what happened, just what's about to happen in Great Britain with Brexit. And by all accounts, people were just worn down. They were tired. There was fatigue. And that's why, as of midnight tonight there, that they will depart the European Union. And I, I think to some degree that's happening here. I mean, how many people talk about just how, how exhausted they are? How many people talk about it? they can't bring themselves to listen to the entire in, in the entirety of the impeachment trial. I'm so glad you said what you said, but before we take a break, you know, it, it's funny because I was listening to NPR either last night or this morning or both about Brexit. It was a rather long and really interesting report about uh, uh, the imminence of this thing. We haven't talked about that at all, right, which right. is a major moment, not just for the UK and the EU, but for us as well. We've barely talked, except occasionally with a John King or a uh, Chuck Todd, about the fact that this pathetic caucus in Iowa, which has huge uh, influence on the ultimate outcome, is happening in three days, eight days after that. People vote in New Hampshire. This is so all-consuming. It's unbelievable. So maybe one of the few good things, I don't know if this is true, that's going to come out of an acquittal this afternoon or early evening is we going to turn our attention to other things since this is pretty much, a, other than the witness issue, pretty much a foregone conclusion. But that's, that's sort of hard to look at the bright side of. 
All right, we are talking about the impeachment process, asking you who will come out ahead. Will it be the Democrats, the Republicans, or the 2020 candidates who haven't been tied up in the Senate chamber? The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live today from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. She's back on Monday. I'm Jim Browdy. It is a huge, it's Judgment Day, essentially, in the United States Senate. We're live from our GBH studios at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about who will really emerge victorious, if anybody does, from the entire impeachment process. Assuming it ends today, is it Trump? Will it be Pelosi, who had long been wary of this? Is Dershowitz cooked? Did democracy take a hit? Will the GOP pay a price for doing the president's Bidding 877-301-8970. I don't know if you saw Dershowitz on TV last night trying to say that he didn't say exactly what he said, that he was misinterpreted or people took it out of context. And then everybody I saw interview him plays exactly what he said from the day before. If a president thinks it's in the national interest that he or she get reelected, then they can essentially do anything. And his contention is he didn't do it. Uh, this uh, he's going to have a tough go, I would say, out of this. Uh, it, it was bewildering. I heard his interview with uh, Steve Inskeep this morning on NPR. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. And uh, I, I feel like I just need to apply to law school now just to decode <laughs> what I was hearing, the back and forth. It was very complicated. Uh, so let's go back to our calls. Yep. Starting with Melissa in Florida. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Melissa. Hi. Hi. Um, hi. My question, first of all, I just want to say um, thank you for... Uh, all you do, I used to live in Massachusetts, listen to you all the time, and Thanks. so glad I can get your, I can stream you down here in Florida. Thanks. Um, but what I wanted to say was, what I worry about, if the Senate votes to not have any witnesses, to not have any evidence, and then to acquit Trump, then I worry about the chilling effect on local and state elections. Meaning who what? Who wants to run for office? Because who wants to run for office if it's okay for the incumbent to use their power based on the fact of their office to defeat you in election. So, for example, is it okay now for a mayor to say to the police department, I'm going to withhold your funds unless you pretend to open investigation, slur someone's name, cast doubt on their character, something like that? What if a teacher is running against a school board member and the school board member says to a principal, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're going to withhold your funding unless you cast out on this teacher's performance or something like that. Um, so I worry about that because this is what the Senate is saying to America, that you can use your office like that. And that's how I see it. Then I also... Well, before I you continue, no by the way, yeah. you, yeah. Uh, I think you said that pretty eloquently. Either it was Adam Schiff or uh, Hakeem Jeffries, I can't remember which of the House managers, did analogies not unlike yours. And I found them persuasive and I find yours persuasive. I think it's, it's a horrible precedent. But keep going, Melissa. Well, I, I guess the reason I called is because I, I did hear Adam Schiff do that. And I, ha I do have to say, um, listening to him, I don't find him boring at all. I think he is inspirational and so bright. And he does, I find each time he does break down the Republicans' arguments and he shows the flaws in each one of them. Um, but I, I have been frustrated with the fact that for um, Americans, I wish they would bring it down to the state and local level. So people, because sometimes talking about foreign interference is sometimes, you know, you think, oh, that's just foreign policy. But if you break it down to the local level so people can understand 
gee, what if I want to, you know, run for the school board? Or what if I even just yeah. um, say something against someone who's in office? Is it okay for them to do something to harm me using their power? Melissa, can I say, ordinarily, I am in total agreement with you. The closer you can bring any story, any issue, to where people live and raise their families, and I agree. However, it really can't get any simpler than this. I mean, I will quote Donald Trump and agree with him completely. Read the transcript. Read the transcript. He basically said to Zelensky, you want your money, uh, uh, do me a favor. Do me a political favor. I mean, I, it, ordinarily, again, I'm with you. This could not possibly be any clearer. It doesn't mean you have to vote to remove him from office, but it is, it is hard for me to believe that these Republicans can say with a straight face that uh, what he did is a, quote, perfect call. Melissa, thanks for, the, uh, thanks for your time. By the way, I mean, the one guy who does get that you can't say it's perfect call is Dershowitz. Is crazy as his presentation has been in this thing. His whole thing, you know, that abuse of power isn't impeachable, that the, the framers talked about maladministration, which is sort of abuse of power, which I don't think it is, and since they ruled out maladministration as being a, a, an impeachable offense, by definition, says Dershowitz, abuse of power is not impeachable, which is preposterous. But at least he understood the notion you really can't defend what the president does. You can say, as Alexander said, Lamar Alexander, it's not impeachable. You can not say in it with a straight face that it is not wrong. You know, to expand on that and what Melissa just said, I mentioned yesterday I spent a couple of nights with uh, David Brinkley this week for Boston Speaker Series. Not David Brinkley, I mean, he's sorry, long Douglas, dead. <laughs> Douglas Brinkley. And we, that was a question for him, too. Are you related to David Brinkley? No. Uh, but he pointed out in a very succinct way what happens here and then with the election ends in one of two ways. Either Trump wins and, and this helps that win and the Republican Party is redefined and thereby maybe changing exactly what Melissa was talking about on the local level, or it goes the other way and then we have a period of healing that you saw with four and Carter in the wake of Nixon. Uh, so it's we have a lot to watch out for. 877-301-8970. Let's go to Roger calling from Marblehead. Hello, Roger. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I'm hoping that uh, if Trump is acquitted today that uh, flags everywhere around the world will fly at half-staff for the death blow to democracy that this tragedy... By the way, you just uh, got many... You, got, you probably can't hear it. You got a lot of applause from the audience here at the uh, Boston Public Library there with that, Roger. Continue. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's a comfort, cold comfort, I would mm. say, on this day. But what I really wanted to say is that I think, uh, even as we speak, I think Alexander Hamilton is crawling out of his grave at the end of Wall Street and coming to Washington to wring the neck of Lamar Alexander <laughs> and, and cast uh, the, the final vote to, to push us over the thing. I mean, this is such a rich moment in history. What I really called in to say, frankly, was that I hope and pray that it comes down to a 50-50 tie and the chief justice is forced to make a call and forces a chance to redeem the stolen election that they did to the Democrats in 2000 uh, with the whole hanging Chad, you know, Bush over Gore. That travesty still lingers in American history and needs to be overturned. And this would be a rich, rich moment of justice, pun intended, should that happen. Roger, thank you, that, will leave you for the call. Appreciate it. If people just tuned in, there is a real dispute as to whether or not if it's 50-50, which would depend on Lisa Murkowski saying she's going to vote for witnesses, uh, if, uh, one, does the chief justice presiding officer have the power 
to cast a tie-breaking vote, sort of like in normal Senate sessions where the vice president, who is, quote, the president of the Senate, casts the uh, uh, deciding vote, which Pence has done a number of times. Uh, a lot of people think he doesn't have the power, uh, including some Democratic senators have said he doesn't. Uh, more people think whether he has the power or not, he won't exercise it. But as he said before, there is precedent. There have only been two presidential impeachment trials before this. Rehnquist was a potted plant, just like, uh, uh, just like Roberts is. Uh, Chief Justice Chase was an activist presiding justice and voted, I think, to break two ties. I'm not sure what he broke ties on, but twice believed he had the power to break a uh, a. a a 50-50, well, not literally 50 votes, but 50-50 uh, uh, evenly split United States Senate. So I would like to see the pressure put on the Chief Justice, too, actually. And so far, the most heated moment, I think, was when he decided last night to not read the question from Rand Paul, Rand Paul in which yeah. he was trying to identify the whistleblower. Uh, but, but so far, that's, the, I think, the, the most discretion that we've seen him exercise. By the way, there was a new poll that our staff pulled this morning from The Hill, uh, and this was taken before news of the Bolton book was announced that showed that 57% uh, of people uh, wanted Roberts to use his authority. So it is... That's to break a tie. To break a tie. And again, that's before we knew about the witness testimony that Bolton could offer. You know, I, I, again, I know we discussed this ad nauseum yesterday and the day before, but why not say it one more time? Those, even those with, for whom Roberts is a towering figure, maybe because of what he did with uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, keeping it alive, say that, you know, he doesn't want to get involved in politics. Well, he's getting involved in politics if he's the tie-breaking vote and doesn't use it. That's number one. And number two is a guy who everybody agrees cares deeply about the institution and the judiciary and the judges are respected. He actually stood up to Trump when Trump said they're Obama judges and they're Trump judges, even though I happen to agree with Trump on that. But he did defend the institution. Uh, uh, how do you argue that a guy who has direct, a high-ranking official who has direct knowledge, spoke to the person who's been impeached, the President of the United States, directly about this issue, John Bolton, is not, you can conclude a trial when he's out there saying, if I'm subpoenaed, I will gladly come in and not sign a subpoena, saying he's there, when you arguably have the power to do it. And at least there's no... I mean, by the way, it's just not clear. It's not spelled out in the Constitution. No one knows for sure what the framers meant. Does preside mean you have the power? Does preside mean you purely, again, do the traffic cop thing? But he clearly could determine that he has that power, and I don't understand if it's 50-50. I do not understand how you don't uh, exercise it. 877-301-8970. We have time for one more. Let's make that Steve calling from Somerville. Hi, Steve. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Hey, just two quick points. Yeah. Everyone's putting a lot of, uh, a lot of weight on a rumor that the Washington Post put, the Washington Post puts out a lot of rumors, and then two days later they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not what we meant. What's a rumor? So now, you know, oh, that John Bolton said this in his manuscript. No one's actually it was actually, it. it was the New York Times, but uh, that's well, fine. The New York Times, they're, yeah. all, they're all the same. And then point exactly. number two, Jim, you, you keep saying, um, read the manuscript. He never once mentioned uh, the Bolton. I mean, uh, the Bidens, yeah. Did he yes, mention he did. the Bidens? Actually, he did. Burisma? Yes, he did. He did mention the Bidens. He did? Yes. Yeah. He said, eventually, yeah, Joe let Biden. Me urge you, let me urge you to read the transcript. Uh, uh, read the transcript. And, uh, by the way, there has not been, to my knowledge, uh, Stephen, thanks for the call, I haven't heard even one Republican defender of Trump who suggests that what the New York has reported that's been leaked from the manuscript is not what the manuscript says. They're just saying it doesn't matter. 
So, uh, 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 and again, we have different views of the of the credibility of the Washington Post and the New York Times. Well, who cares what's in it? Let's just hear from the man. That's who a was wonderful point. In the room, where, where it happened. Decision, I, I'm trying to. I was trying to resist <laughs> saying it one more time, but let's hear it. Either way, I think it's fair to hear it. We got to take a break. All right. Well, and by the way, if Murkowski speaks, I should have said this prior to us going to the actual proceeding at one o'clock. We'll bring that to you the second it happens. Right, well, coming up next, Emily Rooney is here for her famous list of fixations and fulminations. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH live today from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Uh, uh, I was going to say she is Marjorie Egan. Well, she is Marjorie Egan, <laughs> but she's just not here. She's off today. She's back on Monday. Jared Bowen is sitting in for her. Hello again, Jared. Hello again. And by the way, we're an hour and 25 minutes away from the scheduled start of what might be the final uh, day of the impeachment trial. We'll bring that to you live. Before I introduce uh, Emily Rooney, I just want to say Steve from Somerville called a minute ago. One of the two points he made was, uh, you know, Biden's not even mentioned in that, that transcript of that call. Let me just read you just one small portion, Steve, so we don't he said, he said kind of thing. There's a lot of talk about Biden's son, what Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. That is Donald Trump speaking to President Zelensky in that phone call, Steve. So again, with respectfully, I would urge you to do what the president urges us to do, which is read the uh, transcript. In any case, joining us for a famous list of fixations and fulminations and more is Emily Rooney. Emily is host of Beat the Press, which you can catch Friday nights right here on GBH2 at 7 o'clock. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Jim and Jared. Good morning. So the picture that has launched a thousand stories is Tom Brady standing there, his silhouetted figure, uh, and people are trying to decode that. This appeared, I think, last night. Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean? Have you decided, Emily, what, <laughs> so what it means? Decide. The first thing that strikes me about Tom Brady is how brilliant he and his people are at marketing. Because remember, my list a few weeks ago, I was saying, this is a good distraction. Yeah. We have until, yeah, like, yeah, March yeah. 17th. He knows how to keep the distraction going, doesn't he? It's just perfect. It, it it's brilliant. It is very clever. And this is it's a really cool photograph because you can't really tell which direction his feet are going in or out of the stadium. Meanwhile, I don't know if you saw this a little while ago, but um, ESPN broke the news that um, has nothing to do with... <laughs> It's just. What did they say, Kobe Bryant? Or no, what? no, they're saying. No, they're saying it has nothing to do with his status with the Patriots. And what do they say it has to do with? I mean, it's a, it's just a tweet. It's saying we have learned with virtual certainty it has nothing to do. It's like, I don't know. Okay. Well, I don't buy that. I, I don't know. either. Let me tell either. you, the part that yeah. I buy is what you said. Is that as much as we talk about how Donald Trump's brilliance, and yeah. I don't mean this as a joke. I mean it seriously. Is he can refocus America's attention for days with a single tweet. So yes. can Brady. Yes, so can Brady. There are no three one like theories. <laughs> one, that it's to get people guessing and talking about the Patriots thing. While the Super Bowl is only exactly, two days exactly. away, they're talking about him. <laughs> two, is that it's a prelude to an ad 
at the Super Bowl, and we're going to learn Sunday night that this is all an ad for yeah, his probably. watch company or whatever it is. But the <laughs> third and most compelling thing I thought, and again, I don't know what I'm talking about, is I read or heard or something this morning that it was a picture very, unlike, very like a similar black and white photograph uh, of Kobe Bryant after uh. his last game, and we printed it out. Of course, we are on radio, and it is the exact same photograph. It is a well-built tall man mm -hmm. walking down a runway, black and white photograph. And it's very, I think Kobe appears it to be in be his that. uniform. Brady appears yeah. to be in civilian clothes. Whatever it is. It's brilliant. Three, two days before the Super Bowl. It's that's brilliant. all everybody's talking yeah. There's no text. I don't know if you said this. No text. Just a photograph on Instagram with that's no text. It's a beautiful text. photograph. It is but I mean, he had to photograph. be there. He had to be part of it. It's mysterious. <laughs> you know, and there was, it didn't leak out before it hit. You well, know. the other salient point that we have to digest here, which WCVB broke news with yesterday, is that Giselle was spotted in Nashville. So this happens at the same time. What was she doing in Nashville? Well, well they, you know, the, the theory, but a lot of people say it's crap, is that he's gone to the Tennessee, whatever <laughs> oh, no. they're called, and she's, she's looking, looking for another for house. Schools. They just bought a house in uh, stools. She just bought a, They just bought a house in Greenwich, well, up, up country. You know, the, I used to live in Greenwich. You did? Oh, yeah. So I was going to say they'd be the poorest people in Greenwich, yeah, but probably. I assume you may have been, comparatively <laughs> yeah, <I was>. speaking. <laughs> you know, but it is, it is amazing. The guy is 42 years old. Is he 42 or 43? He's, he's old for a quarterback. And this is, maybe it's just here, but for his Instagram thing is on, was on CNN this mm -hmm. morning. It's all over the country. There is more talk about Brady and the mystery mm -hmm. and where he goes than there is about San Francisco and Kansas City Absolutely. playing in the damn exactly. Super Bowl. It is unbelievable. This is unreal that we're not in the Super Bowl. First what? time since 2017. I mean, it's crazy. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. But we are in the Super <laughs> Bowl because yeah, Brady exactly. is essentially <laughs> in the Super Bowl. Speaking of, uh, you know, is it uh, essentially a tribute to uh, Kobe Bryant? I'm glad you wanted to talk about yeah. this Felicia Sanmez today. We mentioned mm -hmm. her the other day. She is a national political reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, shortly after Kobe Bryant died, she uh, <coughs> tweeted a link yeah. to a story that was factually Daily accurate. Beast. Daily Beast. about uh, the rape charge against uh, Kobe Bryant in 2003. And she was quickly, by her immediate supervisor, well, she was told by Marty Barron, the editor, former editor of The Globe, in an email to take it down right away, and her supervisor, the managing editor, is it Tracy Grant, I think is the name, essentially put her on leave. Uh, there's been an update to the story, yeah. is there not? What's the well, status Well, she was now? taken off leave and reinstated because they determined that she did not violate their social media policy. So originally, it wasn't because she tweeted out the Daily Beast piece. Marty Barron said that was in poor judgment. I happen to agree with him. It was because she re posted tweets from all these people and used their name and addresses. Which included death threats, yes, by the way. She some took of them. those down. I have to say, I read that Daily Beast piece yesterday, <clears throat> and it was largely taken from the police reports from, from when the incident happened. So there was a lot of dialogue and a lot of graphic specifics about the rape charge. It was, you know, really... A, it, I'm, I'm not... I'm not saying I believe or disbelieve what happened there. I mean, he was, she, the woman ended up dropping the charges. But I have to say, Jim, it felt to me like a political statement at the time. Felicia Sanmez is herself apparently the victim of a sexual yeah. assault. And for her to just tweet that out without any context, I, th I thought was unfair. Um, you know, not, not and, and by the way, there's been a lot of great stuff written. Tara Sullivan did a great piece about this. Of course, it's part of his legacy, and of course it has to be mentioned. But just to tweet that out 
you know, with no context, I didn't think it was right. Well, since you mentioned Tara Sullivan of the Globe, and I'm a, I've never met her, but I'm an admirer of her writing, sports writer for the Globe, uh, she consciously didn't mention this in her original, original fawning right. piece talking fawning. about, she said something, well, I can't even yeah. breathe. Yeah, right, yeah. She wrote a follow-up piece yesterday or the day before saying, there were reasons I didn't do yes. it, so now I'm yeah. talking about this. I think, I don't know Sanmez, I think the reason she did that, and this is speculation on my part, is that so much of what was written about Kobe Bryant immediately after he died completely ignored, mm. well, let me just finish, completely ignored like Tara Sullivan did, this thing. Uh, and by the way, as we've said, there are a lot of writers, Chris Gasper is a good example in the Globe, who weighed down in his story, I think it was his first story after Brian, <clears throat> he's a huge fan of Brian's too, mentioned maybe in the yeah. 20th paragraph, one paragraph, yeah. on what happened in 2003. Yeah. I think when you read stories that didn't even mention that as part of who he but, was, but when it, I think it's not only, lo- I think it's totally appropriate No, 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 it, it was within this. two hours or whatever. And by the so, way, I was, out, I was out in L.A., everybody was talking about everything, including the rape charges, Instantly, it was you know it happened. They, they got into his legacy. I mean, these people. Not are all ste- the reporters and columnists in LA, were they like, were. Well, fine. That's one part of America. I'm just saying that people weren't ignoring it completely. Do you and, think and she also, should have been suspended for this? No, no, not suspended. But I thought I, I, I happen to agree with Marty. It was poor judgment. Just to tweet that out. But, but why did it need the context? Because I actually appreciated that she she just put it out there very cleanly to basically allowing people to make their own judgment is how I interpreted it. It was a political statement in my mind, you know. Oh, and by the way, you know, it's like it's, nobody forgot about it. Well, I think they forgot about it in their writing and reporting. But putting that aside, there's another issue with this, which I thought was significant, is I didn't know until I was reading a story this morning, is after she pursuant to company policy, sent to Tracy Grant, I hope yeah, I have her first yeah. name right, the, ma- the editor there, uh, uh, some of the death threats she was getting, Grant apparently emailed back to her and said you should either stay with friends or get a uh, hotel or oh, something I know. tonight. It seems to me Cold. that when you're the employer, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and by the way, they're not firing her, and even if they did, yeah. you're suspending her. She's they still should have offered staff, to put her some, yeah. or done something yeah, to ensure cold. her safety. I think they realized instantly they made a mistake. I didn't, Marty Barron released a three-page statement last night. Did you see that? It's, I mean, it's all about social media policy, and it meanders all over the place, and he doesn't uh, address this issue specifically, mm-hmm. but... I mean, essentially saying this is still the wild, wild west when it comes to social media and their policies are not cut and dry or black and white or whatever. And, you know. Do you think, I, just one more time, I want to get back to the original thing. You, forget Sanmez for a moment. If you were assigned uh, that night, or uh, I don't remember what day it was, whatever day we Sunday. learned that, uh, that Kobe Bryant had died along with nine yeah. people in that, cra- in that uh, helicopter crash... If you had been assigned to write the story, would you have mentioned... Oh, of course. Okay, well, then she's responding to the fact that there were a lot of people... And by the way, uh, Emily, there were a lot of people because I read a lot But you're talking about writing. Of- Most of it was broadcast. It was happening instantaneously. She's in print media. I know, but people weren't writing the, you know, their, their long-form pieces. They were still trying to figure out what happened. She did that within the first two hours. We didn't even know who was dead yet. Well, uh, again, I... We didn't know who was dead. It may make people uncomfortable. I understand that. It's part of who he was. She didn't know he was dead. It's part of who he was. (laughs) And a lot of people wrote beautiful things. We discussed this with the Revs on Monday about, I don't know if it's true or not, that because of his deep faith in Catholicism, Mm -hmm. it helped his evolution and helped him become a far better person. Uh, And so, again, I, I, I think it was part of the whole story and... 
I think it was a gross overreaction on the part of what I think is the best paper in America. Well, the they didn't need Post. to suspend her, but I, if he had just left it at, hey, you know, <laughs> it was poor judgment to do it so instantaneously, I would have been happy with that. Let's move to another poor judgment uh, story. <laughs> Can we put, we have a lot of sound here, and in case people miss this, it's, it's going to take a second or two, but it's worth hearing. <clears throat> Here are the, some of the final uh, 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 questions from Mary Louise Kelly to Secretary Pompeo a few days ago. Uh, near the effectively ending the interview. First, obviously, you'll hear Pompeo and then Mary Louise Kelly from NPR. I'll say only this. I have defended every State Department official. We've built a great team. The team that works here Sir, is doing amazing work around the world. where have you defended Marie Ivanovich? I've defended every single person on this team. I've done what's right for every single person on this team. Can you point me toward your team. remarks where you have defended Marie Ivanovich? I've said all I'm going to say today. Thank you. Thanks for the repeated opportunity to do so. I appreciate that. Now, shortly after that, Mary Louise <laughs> Kelly spoke with the, her colleague, NPR's Ari Shapiro, describing what happened after Pompeo's staffer ended the interview you just heard. Here it is. I was taken to the secretary's private living room where he was waiting and where he shouted at me for about the same amount of time as the interview itself had lasted. He was not happy to have been questioned about Ukraine. He asked, do you think Americans care about Ukraine? He used the F word in that sentence uh, and many others. He asked if I could find Ukraine on a map. I said yes. He called out for his aides to bring him a map of the world with no writing, no countries marked. Huh. I pointed to Ukraine. He put the map away. He said people will hear about this. Uh, and then he turned and said he had things to do. And I thanked him again for his time and left. So, Emily? I heard that interview in real time. It was last Friday. So did I, actually. Yeah, was right, Not home. the original. I heard the Ari. Ari uh, no, the I heard the original. With, oh, you did? Yeah. I thought, wow, she's got guts. She's ballsy. <laughs> My God, she's just such stick-to-itness. And then the, the whole thing about Ukraine. But clearly, she had, and she produced all the emails afterwards there was nothing off the record. She never said she was not going to ask about Ukraine. Which would not be standard practice she anyway. She promised she would stick to the majority of the interview on Iran, which she did. And it was just the last two minutes that she moved off. And she did everything right. You know, one of the great lines. Including pointing to Ukraine what? on a map. Okay. I would have been hard-pressed. Well, two things <laughs> about that. One, a, again, the original comment from Pompeo was, you agreed just to talk about Iran. They produced the mm, yes. emails in which she said, no, I'm going to discuss other things. And the email back from Pompeo's staff person, who's the one who ended yep. the interview, said, I understand that. Yes. It's fine. The great line from Stephen Colbert uh, yeah. when he was talking about Pompeo's people saying, well, the deal was only one issue, Iran. He said, what, did they change the name of the show? Is it now called One Thing Considered? <laughs> yeah. Which I think is a pretty good uh, line. But by the way, it doesn't end there. Uh, 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 first of all, you know, the other thing about Mary Louise Kelly, for people who are just discovering her, not only is she courageous and doing the right thing there, I remember when I first started paying attention to her a couple of years ago, when Mike Oreskes was fired oh, yeah. for sexual misconduct. NPR. At NPR, exactly. a yeah. high-level person. She interviewed the CEO of NPR. Talk about a tough interview, whose name is Moan. Mom. And she was I know. tough. I mean, yeah. in a respectful... That's, yes. How would you like to do that Whoa. interview? Nor would I. <laughs> in any case, there's another piece to this. A couple of days later, uh, Donald Trump is, has people at the White House when he announces his Middle East plan. And here's what he says in the middle of that about uh, praising Mike Pompeo for his behavior during that interview with uh, Kelly. That was very impressive, Mike. <laughs> that reporter couldn't have done too good a job on you yesterday, huh? <laughs> I think you did a good job on her, actually. 
For, beyond disgusting, uh, I think you did a good job on her. But In, inaccurate. What? She showed him up. Oh, totally. But there's more to this story, too. Jeffrey Tubin from CNN, <laughs> one of his many nights on CNN uh, with Alan Dershowitz, who obviously is one of the president's lawyers, he confronts Dershowitz, shows video of what Donald Trump said, at which point... Uh, Alan Dershowitz in the second row of the crowd at the White House, again, when announcing this Middle East plan, leans forward and pats Secretary of State Pompeo on the back. Here is the Tubin Dershowitz uh, back and forth. You patted him on the back when the president was praising him for attacking the reporter. I think you're ex- reading too much into that. I had patted him on the back a dozen times when we talked about the Middle East. So that's what my pat was intended to encourage. Not, you know, if he's that, being just attacked at that precise and he's moment. being criticized, I want to show my support because he's a great Secretary of State and he's done great things for the peace process in the Middle East. And if he can help bring about peace in the Middle East, I'll forgive him his rudeness toward a reporter. How do you think Dershowitz comes out of this for that? He led, you know, he's big First Amendment. Alan Dershowitz and Rudy Giuliani are drinking out of the same mm. Kool-Aid jar. Something, something's flipped there. How do you like a Harvard emeritus law professor when confronted with video showing <laughs> him patting Pompeo on the back when the president is saying, I think you did a good job on her, saying like an eighth grader, oh, I've patted him on the back uh, uh, like at least a you dozen You have to times. hand it to Alan Dershowitz, even with his defense of the president over the impeachment. He's incredibly creative. Who could come up <laughs> with, you know, well, it's in, the, it's in the national interest to have him reelected. Who in, the, in a million years could have imagined that that would be his defense? And he, I mean, he puts it forth with a straight face. He did. And uh, yes, last night he was trying to suggest that it was taken out of context. He didn't mean what he said, even though he said what he said. And we've all do, heard it. Do we have an extra second here? I just yeah, want to bring do, up yeah. something sure. about um, Stephen Colbert, because I was watching last night. Um, you know that his two brothers and father were killed in a plane crash in 1974. And he was talking about how it went down in extreme fog. And that airplane crash was one of the reasons why they changed the whole regulation with, with the airline industry. Oh, I didn't know that. And black boxes became an absolute necess- necessity. Uh, helicopters don't have to uh, carry black boxes, and Kobe Bryant's did not. And he was talking about how that should be one of the, one of the new rules, that, that when a plane goes down, one of the worst things for a family is no, not knowing what happened. You know, why did this happen? His turned out to be pilot error. We may never know whether the Kobe Bryant thing was... I as I was saying, I was out there. And my daughter and I were remarking... <clears throat> we were in Calabasas, which is really odd. I didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. How incredibly foggy it was and how unfriendly the terrain is. It's really steep. These, I was saying, no, even a mountain goat couldn't live on this. There were no birds of prey. There's just nothing. These barren, steep, steep hills... And then you look over into these crevasses that go two, two 3,000 feet. So you can see how they would be going over one of these little hills. And then, you know, if it falls, it falls 2,000 feet into one of these things. And you told me In you a heavy fog. And you'd been by there about 15 minutes before the crash happened. I saw the street sign, Las Vertigos, whatever it was. Oh. And, and, yeah, we, we went right by it. I, I mean, I had no idea what was going on around me. But I did notice the name of that street. In any case, uh, Emily Rooney is also here for this. Incomprehensible. It's out of control. Well, how about common sense? doesn't matter. Why not? This is the kind of thing that drives people crazy. It's your right. doesn't matter. I have absolutely no interest. <laughs> okay, take it away. <laughs> These what are got? my observations and oddities about L.A. I always have this oh. when I come back from there. 
But there's so many things out there that are just so different from, from what goes on here. All right. First of all, all CVSs and all Rite Aids carry alcohol. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. That Did is you, unbelievable. I mean, yeah. what? <laughs> and you're not talking rubbing alcohol. I'm talking alcohol. It's right? medicine. Yeah. The HOV lanes are the honor system. Just think about that. We have those that it drives me crazy, those state police that, that are out there guarding the HOV line. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of dollars we've spent on that. They've got the honor system, which I'm sure is bolstered by cameras, but couldn't we de- op- adopt that? Mm. I think so. All right, Jim, this one's for you. Okay, thank you. There is a lunch place called Tender Greens that has to go national. You why, would go crazy. Why is that? It's the food bar at Ooh, Whole, Whole Foods, Foods on upscale by t- 100%. Oh. It's unbelievable. What's it called? Tender Greens. Maybe I'll go to L.A. for you the weekend. It's worth it. It's worth it. All right. Well, this is no surprise. Every third person is wearing a surgical mask. <laughs> if you're wondering why there's a shortage, they're all in L.A. Um, every third car has a vanity plate. That's a very big thing out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we like our vanity plates, but everybody no, has one. No, there aren't one. that many here. And then they like the black with the yellow. That's the old-fashioned... Um, you know, California license oh, plate. Oh, like L.A., what was it, L.A. law back in the day? Yeah, exactly. I, I watched a lot of surfing. And surfing is really cool. Yeah, that's something that we don't have here on that scale. I was, so, I was just out there last spring, too. Oh, I was so struck by mesmerizing. that. Mesmerizing. It's huge in the culture, too. And it's they everywhere. sit out there, and yeah. it's a whole camaraderie. There's hundreds of them waiting for, you know, a wave. Do you know there's a presidential candidate who's a huge surfer? Do you know that? Which I'm one? In all seriousness. Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, Tulsi? No, she is, is she? a big-time surfer. Yeah, I've seen video. All right, I, knew, I learned a new sport, pop paddle. It's a cross between pickleball and paddle tennis. Looks like a lot of fun, pop paddle. These Wait, big plastic... Can I interrupt you for yeah. some very good news, courtesy what? of one of our producers? What? There is a tender greens in Copley. No, no. That's Sweet I just, greens. No, I thought so too, and I just looked it <laughs> it's up. It's not the There's, same. Well, <laughs> How do you do? it's have called you tender greens, no, it's for whatever co- it's worth. Copley would be over here. Check it out. I have to check it out. Check I don't it think out. They're, I'll check it out. Okay. All right. Um, wow. To L.A. people, everything is just around the corner. I was, talking, I was joking <laughs> with my dentist about this, because his daughter lives there too. Just around the corner. It's an hour by car. Everything. Every restaurant, every movie theater, everything. It's an hour. Speaking of movie theaters, in L.A., movie theaters are destination spots with gift shops. You know, they've got, oftentimes they have art displays. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice ones. And then you go to a movie, and there's a speaker before and after the movie. And like a, Wait, a live person. Wait, relating to the movie? Or, or? Yes. Oh. It, you know, they do an introduction, and then they have somebody who's related to the movie. How much does it cost to go to the movies? And I put it on my credit card. Okay. It's about the same as it is here. So it doesn't yeah. cost anything She's if like it's the on queen. your credit card. She doesn't carry uh, money. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Ahead. When you're out in L.A., you know, do you have that app next door? Do you guys have that? No. Oh, really? What is it's, it? It's, it's, it's all about your neighborhood. It's very big in the Back Bay, mm. Beacon Hill, and all that. Because, you know, you, you find out. So anyway, in L.A., next door, if you look at the app out there, it's all about crime and homeless people. Here it's all about lost Fitbits. It's just a completely different thing. Yeah. Homeless thing out there huge. is huge. Yeah. It's huge. And speaking of homeless, so LA does this, they do these in-person surveys. We were outside the Broad Museum, mm-hmm. and this person came up very seriously. They ask you every single thing about your tourist experience in LA, including homelessness, what kind of restaurants, 
what representing uh, who the city yes really and then they they take that all that data back and then they want to know how it affects your experience the negatives and the positives if you want to tell us about your show you only have time for one more all right one, one more what have i got here um oh did you know that no tropical hurricane has ever hit the west coast i did no i did not know that either. well don't they call them something else on the west coast no tropical hurricane has ever hit the fine. west coast that's okay. all i know fine excellent list what are you doing tonight <laughs> okay Emily, at seven all right well, we are doing kobe and there's a lot of other things about that including some of the misreporting and whether you, if, if you heard uh tmz report that kobe bryant was dead would you report that or would how would you do that so and then we're doing uh the kind of the 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 friend the feeding frenzy over coronavirus and whether the media is is feeding into it great and more thank you all right good to see you emily rooney great to see you emily rooney joins us every friday of course you can keep up with her on friday nights right here on gbh2 at seven for beat the press up next popeye's chicken is expanding its wings and launching a new clothing line callie crossley joins us for that and more on 89.7 wgbh boston public radio live today from our studio at the boston public library After spending months doing research on a novel American Dirt, the story of a migrant Mexican family trying to cross the border to the U.S., author Janine Cummins seems to be on the fast track to success. The manuscript netted her a seven-figure book deal. When it came out, Oprah loved it so much, she included it in her book club. Then things started to go wrong. Upon release, criticism piled on the Cummins for being a white author who appropriated the experience of Mexicans her own game. In a few minutes, we'll ask Callie Crossley what she thinks of this and more when she joins us. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, it's no secret Americans are polarized, but how did we get this way? In his book, Why We're Polarized, journalist Ezra Klein takes a detailed look at what turned a nation once united under the red, white, and blue into one that's more at home when it's red versus blue. And at one, we move to what could be the final hours of the Trump impeachment trial. That's all next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to the second hour of today's Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie has the day off. She's back on Monday, we hope, we think. And uh, Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor, WGBH, is sitting in for her. Hello again, Jared. Hello again. We are less than an hour away from uh, the Judgment Day and the impeachment trial, tentatively scheduled for 1 o'clock, usually a few minutes late. Today we'll find out if there are to be witnesses. And as we said, Lisa Murskowski from Alaska, who would be the 50th vote, we believe, Four witnesses, putting it in the hands potentially of Chief Justice Roberts, uh, is reported to be announcing her decision on the witness issue before 1 o'clock. Obviously, we'll bring that to you live the second it happens. In any case, in the interim, joining us as she does every Friday is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. That is Callie Crossley. Hello, and nice to see you. Hey, J&J. <laughs> You've been watching this, by the way? You've been watching the hearings or I'm, the trial? I, I have to keep, um, I have to pace the rage as uh, someone Julia on your, Kayyem, <laughs> on yes, your show says, so I have to look at it at night and, you know, do a whole, do the wrap-up and mm. then have, be a little bit more thoughtful about 
knee-jerk response. Is it really because it drives you so yeah, yeah. crazy? No, no, I can't. So it's for self-preservation. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, self-care. Self-care. No, yes. there are, uh, by the way, we've <laughs> yeah. talked to a ton of people yeah. in the last couple of years who have said exactly what you have said. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of rage, Kelly yes. Crossley, there yes. is a lot of rage around <laughs> this book, American Dirt. Yeah. I, I think this is, I can't wait to hear your take on this because there are so many layers to this. I'll let you explain more, but I'll just quickly explain American Dirt, this new book by Janine Cummins. It, uh, it has been a sensation in the publishing world, big big bidding war, movie rights sold. Oprah has chosen it as one of her books. Uh, but tell us why people have a huge problem with this book. Well, she uh, purportedly is writing from the immigrant experience. She's not an immigrant. That's okay. Um, she's a white woman who has a Puerto Rican grandmother, which did not become part of the conversation until this sort of heated up, which is okay too. Um, 121 Latino authors have written to Oprah to say um, this is exploitative, um, it's insulting, and hey, you know, we like good literature too. We want more voices shining on the issue, but let's have it be good. So specifically, some of the things that have been criticized is that she has some kind of weird uh, obsession with skin color. So in describing the Latino characters, she's all about comparing them to various, you know, foods, depending on their brownness, which people are like, really? You know, um, there's apparently another scene in the book where her character who, if they are supposed to be who they say they are, which are Mexican immigrants, are confronted with somebody on the border who uh, uh, greets them uh, with using um, a, 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 uh, a colloquial expression that w is widely understood and her said character has no meaning. So, you know, these are things you can address if you are really wanting to be a person that knows you're stepping outside of where your experience, your own lived experience. Nobody wants to say that people can't, you know, don't have the ability to write, but if Some people going do to, say that, I know, but I'm, I'm okay. not saying that. I'm just saying that to write whatever you want. I'm saying that you, if you're going there, then you know at least understand what the stakes are and, and what it means for you to get stuff really wrong and to be insulting about it. So let me just say, I have not read the book, don't intend to. So with full sarcasm, I'm saying this because people cannot see me, it reminds me of a Latino, the help. And so I guess Jean Cummins is kind and important. She is kind, she is important, you know, and she's just so special. So she gets this big deal, you know, which she has said herself is because of her own privilege. She knows that they had many choices, or the publishing company, publishing industry, and they chose her specifically because she has that privilege. She knows that. By the way, she can I just that, say, the reason the I was smiling at you when you said what you said <laughs> is when you mentioned the help, Marjorie is somewhere smiling because, you know, that put her oh. totally oh, over the edge, even. the white woman coming to I rescue. Can't. I can't, I but can't. But I'm so glad you said what you said because I want to, uh, a couple of things I'd like to say before the arts, executive arts editor weighs in, <laughs> is uh, she's gotten a lot of threats, including death threats, no, which that's are not, yeah. insane, that's yeah, one. That's not. Two, I'm, some people have said a white person should never write about something mm -hmm. like this. You don't agree, nor do I. I. I haven't read any of it except excerpts, and the excerpts I've read, I couldn't agree with you more, there's stereotyping that is insane, and she obviously didn't spend enough time or have enough interest to deal with those. That is a totally appropriate subject of criticism, and I, I am 
And, totally then we, and then we have to also talk about, which Oprah now says she's going to talk about it and make that the center of her conversation when she does talk to her as part of her book club, is that the industry is really, you know, something about which books it chooses to highlight around which subjects. There are many fine uh, authors writing about this in quite heartfelt, heart-wrenching, beautifully um, executed prose. Um, without this kind of problematic stuff, they're not getting that attention. You know, I mean, I will give her that credit for a not for a knowing that and a saying that she understands that that's happening. But that doesn't make it better. You know, you you do that. And my thing is, when you're going to, um, I would prefer this is just me, my personal own little thing. If you're going to traffic in certain arenas where you know or have many layers fraught, then come from your experience in a respectful way. That's that's my feeling. Sure. <laughs> It, it, this has been discounted here in this studio, and I'm, I'm also with you both, that, that people should be able to write the story as they wish, but it has been a conversation about cultural appropriation. Oprah has said that there will be a dialogue about this mm -hmm. when she, I guess in whatever form she presents and, book and talks about this mm -hmm. book, and part of that conversation will be who gets to tell what stories. Mm -hmm. So that, that it is a persisting argument, even though it's been discounted here. No, it hasn't, well, I've, it's... The author herself, that's why I'm mentioning this, I want to be clear, that the author herself has said she knows that she got pulled out of the, the, the potential group of people, who, the, the number of people who've been writing on this subject in a fictional way. She knows why. She, I mean, she said that. She's not, this is not, she's not naive about it, so I give her that credit. But, you know, now what happens? Um, you know, well, now you have a book out there that, that and, here's, and here's the problem. Some people would never read about this experience or, or delve into it fictionally or non-fictionally. This is going to be the only book they read. So they're going to come away with some of the stuff that we've just discussed here as problematic, and that's an issue. And I would assume that yeah. there are people who think that there is some value in that. At least, that, at least she's making an introduction to the story. Uh, and and I, you're talking about that she should have worked harder. She probably thinks she did work hard. We also have to remember no. how this industry works, that she has an editor who's working with her who should probably also be no. part of this conversation. So let's now, let's start there then. Do we know who the editors are in this business for most of them? They're not on top of this, and they, nor are they trying to be. They're looking to see, is this a saleable book? I get that, that's their bottom line. This is not one of the issues well, the that editors, they're prepared to do. The, the, the authors they that should I've spoken be. to who work with editors, the editor is there to craft, help craft the piece. Publisher might be different. You know, that's about marketing. And I know, but the, we're talking about a, a topic arena that most of these editors are not familiar with. So now we're talking about blind leading the blind. So it's incumbent upon her then, if it really is important to her, that she get it right to then make sure that she gets it right. You know, I mean, we all uh, deal with authors all the time. They have, I don't know how many extra layers of people reading before they even get to the point where they show it to um, a publisher. They're having other readers. This was an opportunity for her to do that and say, okay, let me find some other people to look at this. Here, what do you think about it? Right away, somebody would have said, Stop talking about the layers of chocolate color on the people's skin. What do you think this that, does? To, you know? I mean, Oprah uh, endorses a book, and it's a bestseller. What does this do to her? I mean, we had the James, is it James Fry? Is that the guy's yes, name? With a right. cooked book, right. which obviously right. uh, uh, was a problem, yeah. to say the least. What, does this hurt her? Well, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, she's almost untouchable, but this is the second kind of big cultural 
topic conversation in which she's involved in a controversy. What was the other one? The other one is about the film. Uh, the producers of the films Invisible War and The Hunting Ground yeah, now have a film yeah. about um, Russell Simmons and his that, being yeah. accused by many people of rape, not, and they're clear about it, not sexual assault. They use the word rape. She was an executive producer on that film, pulled out. And she says there were some legitimate reasons to do that. It didn't do what you know, she wanted to do. Those filmmakers are pretty well known in their arena for covering this ground. They have had some criticisms. They're not perfect. But, you know, it's kind of a, it's a weird time for her in this moment. Well, remember what she did to James Price. She eviscerated him on right. her show. But then, he, but, then she, but then he came back. He, he eventually came onto the show, you know, because he said, I apologize, I apologize, I apologize. And then he Did he return the on. money? I can't remember. I can't remember that either. Yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. probably yeah. did not. Yeah. In any case, talking to Callie Crossy. Mm -hmm. So, Callie, I uh, get much of my news on social media, and I have to say <laughs> I'm very careful, generally, <laughs> to uh, scrutinize it. When something seems unbelievable, I do attempt to get a second or third source. When I read this story originally, I knew it was not true until I found that it was. Here is the story of uh, Santori Thomas. He won a racial discrimination case. Mm -hmm. He was handed a check or two. And like most of us would do when you get a check, you go to the bank to deposit yeah. it. Well, Mr. Thomas, again, after having won his racial discrimination case, goes to the TCF Bank, I think in Detroit, mm -hmm. uh, and he does an interview with the Associated Press. Where he has an account. Where he has an account, <laughs> yes. very important point. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he does an, uh, an interview with the Associated Press about how his bank refused to deposit his check and accused him of fraud. Here it is. TCF had an ulterior motive. They did not want to assist me because I was African American. They didn't want to assist me because they assumed that I had a fraudulent check which was far from the truth. I want to be vindicated. I want to make sure people understand and know that they treat customers this way. And this was no mistake. And by the way, not only was it no mistake, to add one more fact before we get your two cents on this incredible <laughs> double racial discrimination case, when they originally refused to cash or deposit or whatever the check, he called his lawyer. His lawyer faxed or emailed over mm -hmm. a copy of the decision in the racial discrimination case where the amounts of the settlement or the decision match dollar for dollar the amounts mm -hmm. of money, I think, on three checks. So there's sort of a double verification process. And, and to finish it off, after he went through all of that, then they called the cops. And they had right, to forgot. interview him in the bank. He's like, what are you talking yeah, about? Well, he thought what? they disappeared to corroborate this. Exactly. They're really calling the police. <laughs> yes. That, that and two were outside as if he was going to, I don't know, grab his own money and run outside. <laughs> I, don't I don't know what was going to happen. So you know, they go through all of that. He then later on, he, first of all, he closes that account out. That, you know, they file a suit against the bank and you know, cause a lot of uh, discussion. Uh, so does the bank finally after defending itself in some kind of crazy ways uh, that make no sense, uh, came back and said, oh, we're, we're kind of sorry. But 12 hours after he got this uh, response from his own bank, closed that account out, went to another bank, deposited the money just fine, nobody had any problem, and was even able to have access to it 12 hours later. So it's, this, is, this is insane. <laughs> And the fact that he's, these are checks from a racial discrimination case. He comes into his own bank to be racially discriminated for depositing the checks is just the height of crazy. 
Well, you know, you know. Welcome to America. <laughs> I'm telling you. We're talking just... to Kelly Crossley from Under the Radar with Kelly Crossley. So moving to Florida now, we've obviously had a lot of debate in this country, maybe less so here in Massachusetts, but about the right of convicted felons yes. to be able to vote. And in Florida, the, the, a ruling recently allowed for some felons to gain access to the ballot box, uh, even if they still owe some fines or legal debts. But that is now being challenged. What do you see happening there? Well, first of all, that was not on the table. So the ruling was by the voters was that we are we are giving back uh, the right of these felons, nonviolent felons, who have served their time, their ability to vote. Period. Can we stop there for yes, a second? Yes. I know this is my northern elitism mm -hmm. coming out. If you had said to me that there's going to be a constitutional amendment on the ballot in Florida, yes, and the question is going to be, should convicted felons have the right to vote restored? when they have completed their sentence, I would have said to you, the odds of that passing are about one in a million. And if I remember correctly, yes. I don't have it in front of me, the vote was overwhel oh, overwhelming, overwhelming to restore the vote. And that's then what right. happened? All right, so that's, everybody thinks this is good. Yay, you know, good for voters, good for democracy. Then the Republican-run legislature, with a little help from the Republican governor, that would be uh, Ron uh, DeSantis, Santa, DeSantis um, came up with, well, let's tweak this just a bit. Why don't we make it, if you can get your right to vote again, um, if you pay any outstanding fines, bills, whatever, whatever they could dredge up. Um, that was not a part of the thing. It's in effect what is known as a poll tax, or what was known as a poll tax, actually in many parts of the South, which was very effective in preventing mostly African Americans to vote. You would come in with your you know, citizen guaranteed right to vote, and they would say to you, well, yeah, but if you, only if you pay X amount of dollars can you exercise your right. So they are imposing this, and now lawyers are saying, asking an appeals court to roll that back and say that, that's, that legislative move was just what it was, a legislative move that's unfair. You know, the one yeah. thing that has happened in the interim, by the way, that is actually creative and good, is my understanding, we discussed this with Andrea Cabral a few weeks ago, and I said, I hope I get this right, but I'll be at least close is what they have done is they, meaning those who actually support the voters' voice on the constitutional amendment, have gone into Democratic counties in Florida, going to judges in Democratic counties, and asking them to rule on the whole issue of these fines and fees and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. And my understanding is in many of the cases, they have en masse, not just for an individual voter, but for all voters similarly situated, yeah. have knocked those things out. So sort of the irony of this thing that's gonna come, the blowback for Republicans, is the places where there are greatest concentrations of Democrats mm -hmm. and Democratic voters are the places where apparently this constitutional right to have your vote restored is being restored. Right. So there may be some justice at the end of the day here, despite the goals of the governor and the Republican legislature. There's all kinds of other funny stuff going on with you know felons and inmates even. They're counting inmates, as you know, in certain areas as part of the population. Mm -hmm. Even though they don't vote, you know, so I mean, in some so, states, so, so they can, yes, so they so can, can appear the to be more money. diverse yeah. and get census right. money. Yeah, that's right. So if we can yeah. move on, yeah. you know that I am on an unending campaign every yes, time you're here to you get are. Michelle Obama to run for president. <laughs> now there is somebody who is sort of half with me, not totally. <laughs> Joe Biden doesn't want uh, Michelle Obama to run for president. Mm -hmm. He wants her to run as his running mate. Exactly. What was the reaction to uh, uh, Vice President Biden's? Uh, I don't know if it was a formal offer or his suggestion that she'd be an excellent vice president? Fat chance. 
that's, that was my response. I was thinking, she's probably at home drinking her you know, tea or whatever and heard that and just laughed out loud. Like, really? I want to be tromping around in Iowa and New Hampshire and every other state as I've done, as I did for eight years? No. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I mean, you know, it's no, it's no, it's no, and it's no. People just have to accept that. He didn't read the book, clearly. Uh, clearly he didn't read the book. <laughs> he did you not. know, speaking of the book, you and Marjorie have uh, talked about it oh, so, so much. Yeah. And I was the lone holdout of the three of us yeah. hadn't read it. And what I've started to do is listening to it in the car. Oh, and she yeah. just won a Grammy yes. for uh, this, as her husband did, for yeah. his two books, yeah. as Hillary Clinton did. Yeah. For uh, uh, I have to say the reading is just, uh, I'm not a big audio book person. I, I'm not at all. It just, yeah. I don't know why, it's been, yeah. but it's more appealing to me when the person who wrote the thing is reading their own book. Yeah. It is beautiful. I mean, it, yes. it is not only beautifully written, as you and Marjorie have said nonstop yeah. practically every week here. Mm -hmm. It is beautifully spoken or read or whatever the appropriate verb is. I don't know if you've listened to her. No, people, it's, but it's people in my book club just it's really great. raved about it and said, that, you know, there's something about just her accent and the way that she phrases the words that it's just beautiful. It's great. But, yeah. but this also means she's barreling to EGOTs. Yeah, isn't that interesting? With an Oscar now. So EGOT, for people who don't know, that's having an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. And uh, yeah, so she's got the Grammy. And mm -hmm. She's got an Oscar nomination. And she's got an Emmy, right? Does she have, she must have an Emmy. Because why are they saying all she needs is an Oscar? I think she needs a few. No, oh, okay. All right. Oh, okay. So who's okay. Mr. Arts Editor? Who's, does John Legend have, he has an EGOT, doesn't he? he? Yes. I think he does. I've, I've only met one. There are only about 12, I he think. He has one. Mel who Brooks, are? Mel, uh, Mel Brooks is one. Mel the, Brooks? The, the one I met was Rita Moreno. She's one. Yes. Thank goodness. Yep. She yep. deserves every. And yes, and uh, John Legend. Legend, yes, yeah. yes, for sure. Yeah, but there were about 12, I think, when I last counted. Yeah, it's not, there's not very many. I think it's less than 20. I mean, yeah, I think it's less than 20. Well, he right? says 12. Oh, it's definitely Let me tell you, if, yeah. so, but if Michelle yeah. Obama I mean, I were saying I'm to me, which would be mm -hmm. better for America, you winning an EGOT <laughs> or being president of the United States, I'd say, hold on the EGOT. That would be my, <laughs> she hasn't, soli she hasn't no. solicited my opinion yet, but if she does, <laughs> yeah. that is the advice. And here's the thing about it, is, she wasn't trying to get an EGOT, she's just doing her thing. She's just doing <laughs> her thing. Just and by the way, the, the uh, uh, Oscar, that they're not, is that joint project, American right. Factory, whatever yes. it's called, yes. yep. I think it's the first film that she and her husband uh, it's produced. On, it's part of their Netflix uh, production thing from their company. Higher Ground, I believe is the name of it, sure, yeah. and it's, uh, it's gotten quite a bit of uh, good reviews. And a documentary, but uh, yeah. let's go to Popeyes now, yes, right? Yes, let's go to Popeyes. But we're not going to talk about food today. We're going <laughs> to talk about, talk about Popeyes fashion. Isn't this, this is so clever, I think. It's very clever. Uh, you know, you all earlier were talking about um, Tom Brady and his cleverness of marketing and all that. I think Popeyes has got him beat, really do. Popeyes has come up with some clothing. Um, and they want uh, folks to wear their clothing, which are in the colors of Popeyes. Um, and by now, everybody must know that this famous chicken sandwich they have is just selling out. Have you had it, by the way? I have not, because I haven't okay. been around a Popeyes. Okay. I have to go south to okay. do it, and you know, I haven't had a chance to do that yet. But I'm looking forward to it, because people say it's really, really good. Um, but what's funny is it has a kind of Beyonce connection to it, because they are doing, kind of mimicking Beyonce's rollout of her Ivy Park athleisure line which some people say she actually borrowed their colors for her Ivy Park line. So they're like taking back their colors and then mimicking her with their, what they call, what they claim is a limited edition clothing. 
It's kind of brilliant. Let me tell you something. My birthday is coming up. If you want to know what I'd love, if I could have some clothing emblazoned with a Popeye logo, wouldn't get much better than that. Or maybe not, actually. Well, uh, the Beyonce Popeye's crossover is pretty good if you're Beyonce, because apparently she has a lifetime free chicken pass. <laughs> exactly. Chicken but she says she's too embarrassed to use it, yes. actually, yes. she has said. But she did talk to Oprah about it. Here, here they are. You heard that you have a lifetime contract with Popeye's chicken? I do, actually. And what, is that, and what does that mean? That you can well, get any free Popeye's chicken at any time? Yeah, I, I really love Popeye's. I can't really eat it anymore, but um, at one point, I just, everywhere I went, people would buy me Popeye's like the fans. And Popeye's heard, so they gave me a lifetime membership. And every time I go, I can pull out the card and get as much Popeye's. <laughs> I don't want the uh, fashion, but I would love a lifetime pass, by the way. Popeyes has been giving out a few of those lifetime they cards as a, every time they get you know, some good publicity, which I think is, is really funny. By the way, uh, Beyonce is vegan now, or vegetarian. Oh. Yeah, so that's why she can't really eat it anymore. She's got a, a serious trainer, that, and you know, she's all about the green juice. <laughs> so what are you doing Sunday night on Under the Radar there, Kelly Cross? So I have my uh, local news roundtable, and we're talking about uh, some of the, you know, the, the local stories from various communities. One uh, chief among them that's just got us going was there's no laundromat in Charlestown. And um, that sounds like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, it's the result of gentrification. It's also a squeeze out uh, because of high rents. But what happens when people don't have a laundromat who do not own a washer and a dryer? Well, the result has been that a lot of lower income um, families and their kids, kids have been going to school with dirty clothes, getting bullied. I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, what replaced the last laundromat was a private daycare. So a lot of the kids are saying, well, we have before us an example of what happens you know, when you happen to be privileged and the rest of us, what's happening. I think it's you know, cause for somebody to concentrate on in a, in a more uh, communal way and maybe subsidize some. I mean, this is this Well, is you know, big. it's a pretty powerful yeah, public yeah, official who yeah. lives in Charlestown, the attorney general. Yeah, this is lives true. Lives there. That's so true. next time she's yeah. with us next month, we'll bring it up. Yeah, so um, that's one of the stories that we'll be dealing with. We have a few others that are just interesting as well. And then the second half of the show is our book club and uh, author Tochi on Onyobuchi has a speculative fiction novel called Riot Baby. And um, I did a whole thing with, about speculative, vision, speculative fiction, which is known as science fiction in some circles, about how it's uh, changing and adapting to all kinds of new trends. And he's embodied all of that. And it's quite interesting. So, so. speaking of, uh, we'll be listening. Speaking yes. of future broadcasts, what are you doing? Uh, is today Friday? Yes, it uh, is. What are you doing in open studio? Tonight, we're still at 8 o'clock temporarily. Uh, we're going to talk about Gloria Steinem. There's a new play at the American Repertory it's Theater. Great. It, 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 I saw it last night. Yeah, it's fantastic. You're With right. her in the, can I say, uh, yeah, in the audience. She was yeah. sitting right across mm. from me. It was pretty fascinating mm. to watch her watch her yeah, <laughs> on yeah. stage. But we talked to Diane Paulus and Patricia Callenberg, the actor playing oh, her, uh, about bringing this to the stage. And then we take you to the Peabody Essex Museum, where for the first time in about 60 years, they've reunited uh, almost all of the 30 panel panels that Jacob Lawrence, the most famous black artist of the 20th century, created. Uh, that's according to the Peabody Essex. That's how they qualify him. I certainly think a lot of art historians would agree. But the series of panels he created looking at the struggle in American history through his own prism 
huge, huge effort underway to reunite these panels, and we get to see them all here before it starts touring nationally. Again, that's 8 o'clock. You're temporarily at 8 yes. o'clock, I'm going to see that because I collect Jacob Lawrence. Oh, oh great. <laughs> you will be so thrilled. I know. Kelly, good to see you. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much for your time. Right. We appreciate it. Callie Crossley is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, which you can catch Sunday nights right here on 89.7 at 6. You can subscribe to her Under the Radar podcast on iTunes or follow her on Twitter at Callie Crossley. Coming up, we keep hearing that our political system is broken. It's a favorite talking point among the presidential candidates who are running to fix it. And his new book, Ezra Klein, argues that it's not in fact, it's working exactly as designed. Stay tuned for that conversation on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio live from our studio at the BPL. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Uh, Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie Egan. Marjorie will be back on uh, Monday. And we are live at the GBH studio at the Boston Public Library and about 25 or 30 minutes away from the resumption of the Senate trial of Donald Trump. Today is Judgment Day. In 2004, Senator Barack Obama was introduced to the world when he gave the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Four years later, he rode that message of unification all the way into the White House, and yet his outgoing message at his last State of the Union address portrayed a different reality. Too many Americans feel that way right now. It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better. I have no doubt a president with the gifts of Lincoln or Roosevelt might have better bridged the divide. What Obama got wrong was that there's nothing that one person can do to fill our ever-widening divide, not him, not Lincoln, not Roosevelt. In his new book, Ezra Klein makes the case, that the kind of extreme polarization we're living through today is not the making of individuals, it's the making of institutions. It's called Why We're Polarized. You can catch Ezra tonight at 7.30 in conversation with Larry Lessig, Lawrence Lessig, at the Back Bay Event Center. It is sponsored by the great Harvard Bookstore. To get tickets, go to harvard.com. Ezra, congratulations. Great to see you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for being here. We heard those allusions to history right, or references to history right there, and you know, we always have this temptation to think that we're in this new era, that we haven't experienced this before. But you point out that Robert F. Kennedy talked about polarization in a very significant way, but it does seem very distinct today. So what is the difference today that makes this feel so palpable in our society? So I think it's an important point. We have been polarized and more polarized than this before. I think there's actually an irony to President Obama bringing up Lincoln as one of the presidents who could get over polarization. Lincoln, in his moment, was a divisive president. He did amazing things, maybe our greatest president. But that was a moment where we were so polarized that the only way forward was actually war. So this is not that bad. <laughs> um, judged by some of our historical stand standpoints, we're doing okay. The unusual period in American politics, and it distorts our perspective because we baseline against it, because it is in living memory, is the 20th century. And in the 20th century, we were depolarized. 
we were unusually non-polarized by party, not just for us, but for any political system that is just split by party in the world. And the reason we were depolarized was actually a hangover from the Civil War. We looked like we had a two-party system, Republicans and Democrats. What we actually had was a four-party system. We had Democrats, as we think about them today, think about FDR. We had Dixiecrats, um, which was a southern conservative wing of the Democratic Party that was quite conservative across a lot of measures, and particularly on race, but entered into functionally a power-sharing coalition with the National Democratic Party, so long as they permitted the Dixiecrats to continue enforcing racial segregation in the American South. Then the Republican Party, you had liberal Republicans like George Romney or Scranton, and you had conservative Republicans. It was the Civil Rights Act that began to rupture this alliance. Civil Rights Act is actually an amazing moment in our history. Think of something that divisive, right? One of the great conflicts of American political history. And it's a perfectly bipartisan bill. In fact, more, a higher proportion of congressional Republicans vote for it than Democrats. But after that, Barry Goldwater, Barry Goldwater runs against it. You begin seeing Republicans win over con- old Confederate states for the first time. And over the next couple of decades, Conservative Democrats in the South, they become Republicans. Liberal Republicans in the North, they become Democrats. And after that ideological polarization happens, then we begin polarizing by demographics, by race, religion, geography. And so it's that stacking of ideology, of demographics, all that on top of party, so that the divisive issues in our country are not just dividing us on their merits, but also in terms of our politics. That's what's different today. So, you know, you've already blown away as reclined the first half of what I think a lot of people who are lost in the moment believe, which is that this all uh, came with Donald Trump. The second half that a lot of people hope is true, but I don't think you do, is that it all disappears when Donald Trump disappears, whether it's today or it's a year from now or five years from now. You don't buy it at all. None of it disappears if Donald Trump disappears. Why won't it? Because Donald Trump is a product of polarization, not the cause of it. Look, there's no doubt that he uses polarization as a strategy. He is intuitive about what our deep social conflicts are, and he rolls grenades into them on the daily. But I was having conversations about polarization in the Obama era. I mean, you guys played that great clip of him. This was starting, and it was growing. Um, I begin the book by talking about the 2016 election. And the 2016 election feels, particularly to many liberals, like this unbelievable aberration. There was actually a New Yorker article saying, well, it's clear we're actually living in a computer simulation and something has gone awry. But if you look at the results of the 2016 election, I think this is important. What Donald Trump does for all of his strangeness as a candidate, bragging about penis size, saying Ted Cruz's father maybe helped assassinate JFK, for all that he attacks John McCain and George W. Bush, he's heterodox on a lot of traditional Republican policies, he basically puts Mitt Romney's coalition right back together. He trades out some college-educated whites for some non-college whites. That's it. So one of the things happening as the parties become very different is that no matter who they run, they basically start with 44% of the vote. No matter who either party runs, so long as they get that national nomination, they begin in spitting, different, in spitting distance of the presidency. And once you have that, you lose a lot of the capacity for accountability in politics because allowing your side to lose and the other side to win, the stakes are too high, and you're really seeing that right now in impeachment. Where would we be uh, today if uh, those, whatever it was, 50,000, 60,000 votes in those Rust Belt states had been cast differently? I think we'd be in terms of polarization. In terms of polarization, I think we'd be in better place in this one respect. If what was happening in American politics was that the public majorities were translating into political power, so Hillary Clinton won by three million votes, and so she was now president, and maybe in the Senate you had a popular majority as well, so that would make the Democrats in the majority. What that would have done is discredit the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party. You would have seen 
a great howling and gnashing of teeth among Republicans because that was clearly a winnable election. And to have nominated Donald Trump, run a very socially divisive campaign, and lost when a Marco Rubio or a John Kasich or maybe even a Jeb Bush could have won. And so you lose to Hillary Clinton. She is now able to potentially fill that Supreme Court seat. It is possible that having then lost three times in a row at the presidential level, the Republican Party would have reformed and tried to move to the middle. That would not have ended polarization. I want to be very clear. But you can be marginally better or marginally worse, and I think that would have been marginally better. That's the voice of Ezra Klein, his latest, just out a couple of days, Why We're Polarized. Well, you spent the first few minutes of this interview talking about the leaders who can lead us in or, or could possibly lead us in or out of polarization. But are we all lemmings? Are we capable individually of, of resisting that tract? That's a hard question, to be honest. Um, the argument I make in the book is that we overly individualize our thinking about American politics, and particularly political journalism narrativizes almost all American politics through politicians or even individual voters, right? You go out to a swing district. I've done this too. I've done plenty of these stories myself. I actually just ran a focus group in Pennsylvania of undecided voters. It's like this person in this space with their, these decisions. What I want people to focus on is the overall system and why the way people are acting is rational. So yes, individual people can resist polarization. Of course we can. But why would we, actually? When the other party is this different, why wouldn't you make a choice? One of the amazing stats I found while researching the book is that if you ask people who are low-information voters today how sure are they of the differences between what the parties believe, they are more sure than high-information and strong partisan voters were in the 70s. That's remarkable, and it's not because the low-information voters now have more information. It's because the differences are clearer. In 1976, Republican Party National Convention platform, it has a plank on abortion, and what they say is that in our party, there are people who believe abortion should be available on demand, there are people who should be, believe it should be illegal in all cases, and we respect that difference of opinion. If you look at Bill Clinton's 96 convention platform, on immigration, it reads like Donald Trump. When the parties were more similar to each other, it made sense that it was harder for people to make these decisions, to choose. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with polarization, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being polarized. We can have disagreements in politics. The problem is when our political system does not allow for the resolution of those disagreements. Well, it's in part because you're, we're fact-averse. I mean, that's almost an understatement, is it not, that facts don't matter, yes? Facts matter when you want to believe them, and they are hard. it is harder to make them matter when you don't. Well, but that, but that is fact-averse. Yes, I understand. I mean, I mean that's almost <laughs> I'm the trying definition. to be nice about it. <laughs> okay, but that is where we are. I mean, that's, my colleague who is not here today, Marjorie Egan, there's not a day that she does not talk about Fox News, mm -hmm. and her head is ready to pop off when she recites what she saw on Sean Hannity the night before. But people do, they accept as factual that which agrees with their predisposition, and they reject that which doesn't. I have, yes. a, lot of, I have a lot of political psychology in the book, and one of the scary findings in it is that the tendency to self-deceive yourself in the direction of your political opinions rises as you become smarter and more informed. So this idea, this Deweyan idea, that if we just got more information, if we just read more, then we would really understand the truth. It can happen. It's not that it can never happen. But actually, we become better at self-deception because we use all that considerable intellectual horsepower and artillery to find the information that backs up what we already believe. Can we talk about self-deception for a second, Ezra Klein? I mean, the, the phrase that all of us took from, uh, was it Thomas Frank, uh, what's the matter with Kansas? We had Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudon on the other mm -hmm. day asking the same question, why do people vote against their own self-interest? Why do people vote against their they own self-interest? They don't. Well, work it's a very, it's a very narrow view of self-interest that is being put forward in those arguments, and I think it's a mistaken one. People's self-interest is not simply whether or not they're going to get the tax cut. 
whether or not they're going to get health insurance or they prefer this policy towards China. People's self-interest is also their identity, whether or not their group is rising or lowering in status, whether or not they feel liked by the political system, whether or not they feel represented in the political system. Something we know is that as people become more politically engaged, they stop voting as much on direct resource concerns. Self-interest is defined that way, and they begin voting more on what's called identity expression. It's more about what do these policies say about me? What kind of person am I? Look, I am somebody who believes we should have universal health care in this country. And if we do, if we get a real, solid, good universal health care program, in some ways, that may be against my self-interest. I have health care now, and I'll probably be taxed more to pay for it. I do pretty well. That's not against my self-interest. I believe in a better world. It is part of my identity of who I am that I believe everybody should have health care. So when we narrow self-interest to narrow material concerns, we end up misunderstanding why people participate in politics, and it's a perennial reason the left loses, because they keep wondering why everybody isn't just responding to these plans. They're going to redistribute money, and they're missing this whole layer of politics that is about expressing who we are and what we believe and who our group is and what should be thought about that group in society. So when those voters who I would have said voted against their own self-interest, voted for Donald Trump, in part, based on your analysis of 10 seconds ago, they were voting against Hillary Clinton as much as they were voting that was for definitely Donald one. I Trump. mean, there was a lot of polling showing the majority of Donald Trump voters said they were voting more against Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. But also, self-interest goes, even if you're taking very concrete material policy change, it goes beyond economics. A lot of those voters, particularly the Obama-Trump voters that we've studied and know about, one of the things that characterized Obama-Trump voters was strong negative feelings towards immigration. And Donald Trump came into the race, and he made immigration the center of the race. He made uh, how you feel about a changing, browning America very, very salient. He activated that identity. And those voters were voting in what they felt to be a self-interest. They did not want to see their country changing as much as they felt it was changing. I disagree with them on that, but I can't tell them that is not their understanding of their interest. You know, before we get back to your your, uh, thesis and the theses in this book... You know, most of us came upon you as what I'll call sort of the explainer-in-chief for America, and you did it brilliantly. Does this fact aversion stuff not drive you out of your mind? And thank you, but it does. It calls my entire personal project, my whole career, into question. I say in the book that this research is like staring into the abyss. If what you know, in part, is that when it threatens your identity you are going to use the considerable reasoning powers and you know, researching powers to convince yourself of what you want to believe. Well, how do you reason your way out of that? I have some arguments I can make back and forth about how you can moderate it, but more than anything, it makes you humble. Um, there's not a pure answer to this. And by the way, we didn't invent it now. It's not like we just invented fake news or fake facts. I mean, the Michigan Dearborn Independent used to publish the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in the paper. Henry Ford ran the paper and published it as news. So this has always been with us. If I have any piece of hope in all this, it's that sometimes I think that we fool ourselves about how good the past was in order to make the present look worse. The past was pretty bad, too. Well, media is very, very different today. And you talk about that in your book. It, it, it's, it's a lot louder. And how do you conflate that with what you were just talking about? The more informed you are, the more likely you are to be polarized. So the big changes happen in the media. And this is where I do my work and, and have seen this and been part of it and have been part of these trends, both for better and at times, I want to admit, for worse. We have moved from media that is not particularly choice-oriented. You had three nightly television newscasts. You had a couple radio channels. When I was growing up, you, you know, I got the LA Times because I lived outside of LA, to 
a media that is unbelievably competitive and has choices around everything. And there's a great study I talk about in the book that tracked people after getting cable and after getting internet to see how their political information changed. And the amazing thing is that on average, we didn't become more politically informed despite having so much more information. So why? And what they found was that what happened is that political information began to sort by choice. The people who chose to get political information became much more informed. But it also became a lot easier to avoid it. You weren't watching TV and all of a sudden the news was on. So the people who didn't want to know much about politics, they could segment themselves off from it much more effectively. So as that happened, what that meant for the media as a business ecosystem is our audience became more polarized. To try to appeal to them, we began producing more polarizing content. Then you get social media in which the most polarizing stuff with the highest intense emotional reaction is what gets shared, goes viral. So that's the stuff, even if you're publishing a lot of different kinds of pieces a day that people are seeing the most of, that's an excel of polarization. It just is. So even though your book was just released a couple days ago, it's out of date in one regard. You have uh, our own Governor Baker as the number one or number two most popular governor in America. Governor Baker was with us last week and had to explain, he had to explain to us why he had dropped precipitously to number three behind, I think, the governor of Wyoming and Larry that, that Hogan. That is rude of him to do uh, it because <laughs> my book just came out. Why, uh, uh, why is Baker and Hogan from Maryland, who've been one, two most of the last couple years, why are they mentioned in your book as reclined? So one of the things I argue in the book is that a problem in the current Republican Party is that by finding a pathway to governing power federally in the Senate, in the House, in the White House, through minority levels of support, they have walled themselves off from the disciplining effects of democracy. And when I argue for more democracy by things like getting rid of the Electoral College or campaign finance reform, et cetera, I think something people could say is, well, aren't you just arguing that Democrats should win power everywhere and forever? And one of the reasons I look at people like Baker and Hogan, who were, at least at the time I was writing, the number one and number two most popular governors in the country, is they show that Republicans, when they are running in blue states and when they are dealing with an electorate where they need to win a majority, they can be very effective. They can moderate. They can have a very inclusive agenda. We actually need, the way the American political system is structured, two viable parties that are competing for most of the public to favor their agenda. The fact that we have one party competing for most of the public to favor its agenda and another party representing a minority that is optimally geographically distributed is actually not a good incentive system for American politics. Are we a democracy? No, of course not. I mean, look at what is happening right now. Look, the House is under Democratic control, but in order to get that control, they needed a historic landslide win in the popular vote. The Senate is under Republican control, despite Democrats winning more votes in the past three Senate cycles. The White House is under Republican control, despite the president winning three million fewer votes than his uh, competitor. And the Supreme Court is under Republican control because of the White House and Senate distortions. So no, we're not a democracy. You know, you, as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, a couple of, you don't spend a huge amount of time on solutions here, but you do, you mentioned in passing here in the book, the Electoral College thing, uh, uh, gerrymandering, which obviously the Supreme Court took a walk on not too long ago, at least political gerrymandering as opposed to racial uh, uh, gerrymandering. It seems to me that even if everybody adopted your solutions, we've talked a lot about this, the Supreme Court is almost an insurmountable issue in terms of restoring democracy. If Donald Trump, let's assume he isn't reelected, he still has a conservative majority. And as we know, the two oldest justices are the two most liberal justices, Breyer from across the river and Bader Ginsburg. Obviously, she's been sick. They're both old. Let's assume he's reelected. He could have four or five uh, 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 appointments uh, to the court of 45 to 50-year-old people who could be there through six or seven presidents. How do any of these reforms address that? Oh, I didn't tell you these reforms were going to pass. <laughs> um, no, but even if no, they were to pass. Even if they were. So... 
I would say two things. One is that it would be, in terms of the Supreme Court itself, it would be in the long term by making it so that popular majorities were able to wield power when Supreme Court vacancies came up. Um, but that wouldn't address what you're saying, which is not only is the Supreme Court making and can make decisions that will reinforce Republican Party power, I could have mentioned as well the decision they had gutting public sector unions, which mm-hmm. are a key Democratic power source, but they also just have this capacity to uh, exert judicial review. There is not an answer that makes that go away easily. Now, look, there are things you can imagine Democrats doing. You can pack the court. It's possible to change the way the Supreme Court works, and you can do it without changing the Constitution. I have at least some level of uh, discomfort with those solutions because things that are going to come off purely as power grabs, I think, become dangerous in terms of legitimacy. But the underlying thing you're saying, I think, is correct. I think we are barreling as a country towards a legitimacy crisis. I mean, imagine a future where what you have is continually Democrats are winning more votes, continually Republicans are holding power, they're re-entrenching that majority on the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is passing more rulings and make it easier for Republicans to win elections. Um, just previously, your guest was talking about what was happening in Florida. You were all talking about yeah. what was happening in Florida, where the voters voted to give felons back the right to vote after they'd served their time, and the Florida legislature, under Republican control, move to gut that because they understand that more people voting is going to be bad for them. Over time, that divergence between what the public wants and what the political system permits, that's what destabilizes political systems. You know, I don't know if I read this in your book or read it in a piece you're quoted in or wrote yourself. The statistic that blew my socks off, one of many of yours, was this thing about where, we, where the population is in 2040 and what that means in terms of senatorial power. Can you repeat that Yes, I, I'm going to try to do it because I always get it wrong when I try to do it off the cuff. By 2040, 30% of the country will control 70 of the 100 Senate seats, mm-hmm. which is to say 70% of the country will control only 30% of the Senate seats. Because the 70% will live in 15 states. I'm mm-hmm. quoting exactly. you. I didn't come yes. up with this myself. Nor I mean, did I. <laughs> so how the hell do we... I mean, how that is just... That's unbelievable. I mean, unless you mm-hmm. abolish Senate rules, which obviously are mm-hmm. not going to happen, that, every, that Vermont gets as many seats as California mm-hmm. does the United States Senate. How does one deal with that demographic. I mean, it seems to me, when I read your thing and I read the solutions, the only solution, and I put this in quotes, that, that is credible to me, at least achievable, is that old white men die out eventually. I, I mean, didn't put that as a no, solution. No, you I didn't, want to be but clear. I, no, but I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, when you talk about the diversity of the Democratic Party and you talk about the lack of diversity in the Republican Party, mostly older, more conservative white men, as the country becomes more majority or becomes majority minority, that's what restores the democracy that's missing. I think that it? is I think that is one of the ways this could play out is what I call the California case, and I'm Californian, which is if you look a couple decades back in our history, you have Governor Pete Wilson, you have Prop 187, you have a right. series of fights about demographic change with the Republican Party in control that is very similar to what we're seeing nationally, but then demographic change overwhelms that capacity to hold that form of politics, and now to be a Republican successfully in California, you need a more inclusive, diverse form of politics. I think the negative version of it is disenfranchisement, right? That instead of doing that, what Republicans do is they're able to pass laws that are able to entrench power despite not appealing to this new majority. I will tell people right now, my book is about describing how a system works Clearly, it is not about giving you false hope that somehow we're going to solve it all tomorrow. I think it's important. There's a weird thing when you write a book about a hard problem. I was like, well, how do you solve it? And it's like, (laughs) if it were that easy to solve, I wouldn't have had to write a book about it. (laughs) 
Well, the book is fabulous, by the way, and I know I speak for Jared. We learned a huge amount. I really so appreciate congratulations that. and thanks for your time, Ezra. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Ezra Klein is the editor-at-large and founder of Vox. He also hosts the Ezra Klein Show podcast. His latest book is Why We're Polarized. You can catch him tonight at 7.30 in conversation with Lawrence Lessig at the Back Bay Event Center. That's sponsored by the Harvard Bookstore. To get tickets, go to harvard.com. Well, up next, we continue our live coverage of the impeachment trial. You are listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. 